Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 23 and reading down to chapter 7, verse 4. Romans 6, 23. Let all who have spiritual ears hear the word of the Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing again. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who illuminates your word, opens the word to our understanding, and changes us from within. Changes us, Lord, so that we begin to look more like you. We ask that you would meet with us this morning. Humble us, Lord. Father, you alone are exalted and are to be praised. May all our confidence be in you for the work that you have purposed and will accomplish. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. We are the people of your pasture. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we finished um, looking at verse 22 as we've been working our way through chapter 6. And it's a little bit of a strange place to stop at verse 22 since verse 23 is really the summary statement of everything Paul has been saying in verses 15 through 22. Um, but in the Lord's providence, this is the way he has worked it out. So today, I'd like to look at verse 23 together with you. What is this summary statement that Paul gives us? And then how does that lead into this next wonderful section of Scripture, Romans chapter 7, um, of which we are, Lord willing, going to take the first four verses, the first logical thought. Um, as you may recall, really the first half of Romans chapter 6, just by way of refresher and context, um, especially for those of you who have not been with us for this series, in Romans 1 through 14, Paul has been addressing really a, a key question. And the question is this, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's true that we have a superabounding grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know we have that because we've come to him by faith in Christ. We've been justified by faith in his blood. Should we just continue to sin? Should that be the, the continued trajectory of our lives since grace would simply cover and erase all our sin? And Paul says, absolutely not. What a, a horrid thought to suggest that God's grace is actually a tool to promote lawlessness. 
when it is in fact that which is intended to and will promote holiness. And so Paul takes great pains in the first half of chapter 6 to show us that the reason we have grace is all for holiness and not for the furtherance of sin. In the first half of chapter 6, he's shown us this is what God has done for us in Christ to release us from bondage and slavery to sin. He has supernaturally joined us to Christ. He's brought us into union with him so that we have died with him, we've been buried with him, and we are now risen with him to a newness of life, a spiritual resurrection where we now no longer serve sin, but we serve the Lord. We serve righteousness. We serve holiness. In the second half of chapter 6, he gives us the test. Here's the test to know if, in fact, this is true of you, Christian. Are you one who has been freed from the power of sin? Answer this question. Who is your master? Who is the one you obey as the habitual pattern of your life? Who is the one who to whom you answer the door when he knocks? Is it sin or is it the Lord? And so we see, really, as we progress from the second half of chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, if you continue in sin because you say that you are not under law but under grace, you only prove that you're really a slave to sin. Nothing has actually changed. You've never been truly converted. Sin still is your master and has dominion over you. And remember, there's only two masters. It's either sin or righteousness. Sin or God. And everyone is a slave to one of these two. There is no third category. And so, of necessity, we know who our master is because it is the one we obey as the pattern of our lives. In verses 17 and 18, he says, But for you believers, praise the Lord. Thanks be to God that he has rescued you from your slavery to sin, and you are now enslaved to a new master, righteousness. And how do you know? Well, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. In other words, you obeyed the word of God, the gospel which was delivered to you. You were poured into the mold of God's word, and you have taken its shape. You have received it, you are obeying it. This is the new pattern of your life. And he says in verse 19, slavery is not a perfect analogy. People are sinners and slavery is a corrupt institution. But there's something I want you to understand from this imperfect analogy. In the same way that you gave yourself to uncleanness and to lawlessness, which only leads to more lawlessness, more corruption, in that same way, I want you to give yourself, in other words, all of yourself, all your members, all your faculties, your mind, your affections, your will, to righteousness. Give yourself now for the first time to right living. Give yourself to um, pleasing the Lord in all that you do. And as you do that, it has a sanctifying effect. It will make you more and more holy, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he says, you had no ability to do this previously. You were really in the domain of sin. You were altogether outside the domain of righteousness. You were free from it in that sense. It had no control over your life. But now you can and ought to and must give yourself to righteousness because you have been yoked to a new master, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In verse 21, we saw all of us who have Christ as our new master have a new perspective on sin. This former life of ours, we now look on it as shameful. We don't glory in that life. We're ashamed of it because all of the fruits, so-called, of that life lead only to death. Only to death. Yes, previously we were deceived. The devil presented and is good at presenting the bait, which is the sin, but he hides the hook. And we took the bait every time. We enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season, but now we realize all of that ends in death. It's not to be gloried in. There's really no joy there at all. And in verse 22, he says, All who have Christ as this new master, you know it not just because they've received the word and they are obeying the word, but because they are now fruitful. All of you who are Christians have your fruit to holiness. You are producing the very character and actions of Christ in you because you are, again, joined to Christ. He is the good tree. You are the branch that's grafted into the good tree. So by virtue of him, you've become a good tree. And he is bearing his life in you. He is producing his fruit in and through you. And so fruitfulness always and of necessity leads to holiness. And holiness leads to the wonderful end, eternal life. Eternal life. We're going to talk about that more in verse 23. Here in verse 23, we have this summary statement. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul doing here? Well, you may remember that previously he had personified sin as a tyrant. In verse 21 of chapter 5, where he said, So that as sin reigned in death, he's personifying sin as one who reigns as a sovereign with cruelty, with sovereignty. As he reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And also in um, uh, chapter 6, verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. And so there Paul personifies sin as a general, as a military commander who commands your obedience. And he says, You don't have to listen to him anymore. Present yourselves to God instead. And so sin has been personified by Paul a couple of times now. And here in verse 23, sin is personified as an employer. An employer who pays wages. Wages, opsonion. It's really the word that refers to what a soldier would receive as the due reward for his service. A soldier's pay. It carries the idea of rations, food that was given in exchange for service. In other words, this is what all sinners deserve. We deserve wages. What are these wages? He says death. Death. This is a legal term. A legal term. That's important because slaves of sin, though you may not think it, have legal rights. You know what their legal rights are? Death. That's all they're entitled to. This is what our works deserve. When we operate in our natural state, when we seek our own righteousness, even in a small measure, we think that we have some goodness, some standing before God because of what we do, the end payout for that is death. And that death is 
a second death as described in Revelation. It is an eternal death. Death means separation from God. And really, the essence of all misery and destruction is separation from God. And so, yes, it does mean, in the final sense, the wages that are paid out at that last day, at that great white throne judgment, will be eternal death. But also, I found this very interesting. Uh, Gerhard Friedrich points out in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament these wages are not just one payment to a soldier, but they were continuous payments to a soldier. Continuous payments. And so that means that death is not just thought of in the final sense, but death is and should also be thought of in this sense. Death is, it, death is that shadow that is cast onto life. So in other words, every time a sinner sins, he is corrupted by that sin. It's very much the idea of Romans 6.19. We presented our members slaves to uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, further corruption. That's death. It's the corrupting influence of sin that is in the heart that only destroys the sinner bit by bit. Really, that was what Romans 1 was largely about. This idea of judicial abandonment, that God simply turns us over to the wicked desires, lusts of our own hearts to be ravaged by them. And the consequences of that are disastrous. Disastrous. So the principle is always that sin leads to death and it is earned. It's deserved. That's the point. But lest we think that this principle is just a principle in the abstract and that Sin is the ultimate payer, the ultimate employer that gives this wage. Remember that this principle was originally ordained and established by God himself. This is his principle that he gave back in the garden in Genesis 2.17 when he said to Adam, "You, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that tree you will surely die. And as we know, that curse was realized they ate of the fruit, and they did die. And so the Lord cursed the man, and he said, and he cursed the woman, he cursed the serpent, and he cursed the ground. And he said this, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of you, excuse me, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So there's God's principle in action. Sin leads to death. They died spiritually at that moment in the garden. They died physically later. But there is an eternal death that is most to be feared for those who are standing in their own strength and their own righteousness. And we see this principle that God will repay every man according to his deeds repeated throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture. Take, for example, Isaiah 3, verse 11. Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. What his hands earn, he will be given by God. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. Very simple. Very simple. Death is what we are owed for our sin, and frankly, we want nothing to do with those wages, right? Wages uh, are thought of as a good thing normally, not these wages. And here's the contrast. The wages of sin, death, but the gift. The gift. In other words, not something earned. 
something received freely. So here's the key point of this summary statement, brothers and sisters. Sin's wages are always earned, but God's gift is always freely given. Always freely given. What is this gift of God? He says it is eternal life. And we really looked at that last week in Romans 6.22. The emphasis is not on an existence that lasts forever. It's much more than that. He's talking about a quality of life, really the life of God himself that we have entered into through a knowledge of God that he has given us. He's disclosed himself to us. And so you remember Jesus said in John 17.3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is really equated with a knowledge of God. And so we have entered into that knowledge. It's not just something yet to come in the future. It is something that we have now and that we are growing in, and that will continue to grow to all eternity. So eternal life is this knowledge of God. And where is this life found? This is so important. These words we, I think, are familiar with, and so it's easy to pass them by. But think on what Paul is saying here. Where is eternal life to be found? He says, in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, only in Him and not in any other. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is the only name. He is the only one, the God-man, who lived a perfect life, who was born sinless unlike us and lived a perfect sinless life and who died a substitutionary death in our place, taking all our sin upon himself. John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 says, and this is the testimony, the witness, that God has given us eternal life And notice, this life is in His Son. It's only in His Son. And He goes on to say in verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you are trusting in anyone else or anything else, you don't have life according to the Word of God. For all life is from the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is only in Jesus. And then just these final words in verse 23. In Christ Jesus, he says, our Lord. Our Lord. We knew him as Savior when we came through chapters 3, 4, and 5. Why? Because we trusted in him by faith and we were justified. He became our Savior. But after coming through chapter 6, don't we now know him as Lord? As our new master whom we obey? That's right. And his yoke is easy. His burden is light for all who are his, who love him with his own love. So, really, chapter 6 is all about holiness. The necessity of holiness that must follow after justification. Now we come to the infamous chapter 7. Chapter 7, some people think of chapter 7, in fact, maybe many people, if you were to ask them, what do you think of when you think of Romans chapter 7? I would venture to say that most people probably would respond. It's the question of whether Paul is describing a saved man or an unsaved man, and I really don't know the answer. Um, It can be confusing 
because of that. And it's been a, a much wrestled with text in Scripture. But as I am praying, the Lord will give us all light to see that there is an answer to that question, but there's also much more that is to be gleaned in chapter 7. Just in terms of a big picture context again, remember, when we were in chapter 5, in finishing chapter 5, we said that chapter 6 and 7 are really a pause. A pause in Paul's discussion on justification by faith alone in order to address two issues that he anticipated would arise. The first was antinomianism. The person who says, let's just sin with impunity because we have grace to cover us. And so Paul addressed that in chapter 6 and he addressed it very clearly. Um, In chapter 7, he now gets into what is the role of the law? He said something very provocative in Romans 5, verse 20. Do you remember what that was? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's interesting. Paul, what's the role of the law? The, role, the law entered that the offense might abound? That sin might become more visible, more clear? Doesn't the law have a, like a saving role? That's what a lot of Jews thought. And so Paul is going to take chapter 7 to unpack that question. What is the right role of the law? And if you go back to Romans 6 verse 14, the last verse in the first half of that chapter, he says this, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And you remember in that message, we started to unpack, what does it mean that we're not under law anymore? Well, here in chapter 7, he is really, and the first couple of verses of chapter 8, is going to answer that question in detail. And I hope to give you a lot of that today, just in the first four verses of chapter 7. So, chapter 5, again, by way of review, it was all about assurance. Assurance because we have faith in Christ, which has given us, by God's grace, the righteousness of God. A righteousness which is forever, which is never going away for us. In other words, all your sins were forgiven. Not just your past and your present sin, but even your future sins that you have yet to commit. They've all been forgiven. There's no more work to do to cleanse you from those sins. Christ did it all at the cross. That's the root of our assurance in the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. We are not re-crucifying Christ afresh week after week after week or doing some kind of special penance and works in order to gain His favor. We have His favor. So assurance is the key of chapter 5. Chapter 6, as we just saw, holiness. Holiness is the theme. All who have been justified are of necessity sanctified. And now chapter 7, here's another theme. Freedom. Freedom. And really in the context of the law. So there's another provocative idea. What does that mean? Freedom from the law. Are we not using the law anymore? Has the law been totally set aside? That's what we're going to tackle. If you're taking notes, there's really three divisions to this chapter, three main headings. The first six verses of chapter 7 describe the relationship of the believer to the law. The relationship of the believer to the law. And his answer is, we're free. What does that mean? We're going to find out. Verses 7 through 12, the second heading is, what the law has power to do. What the scope of the law's power really is. Because Paul's going to say the law is good. So it has a purpose. It has function. And then the third section, 13 through 25, is what the law has no power to do. 
no power to do. And that really is to save us. It's describing the position that we would be in if we were left under the law. Okay? So those are the three headings of chapter 7. The relationship of the believer to the law, what the law has power to do, and what the law has power not to do. And I want to give you just three headings for these first four verses today in Romans 7, just to guide um, this sermon. The first is the principle of law. We're going to see that in verse 1 of chapter 7, the principle of law. The second is the example of law, example. And then the third is the application of the law. Okay, so the principle in verse 1, example in verses 2 and 3, application in verse 4. Let's look at the principle of the law first. He says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law? Well, who's that? His audience is the Romans. The Romans are comprised of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews would be very familiar with the law, the law of God. The Romans also, who were not Jewish, would be very familiar with the idea of law, living in imperial Rome in their day. Everyone in his audience knew what it meant to live under law. He says, don't you know, brethren, I'm speaking to you Christians who know something of law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. I want you to understand this principle. The law has dominion only over living people, not over dead people, only over the living. Verse 2, for the woman or for a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. This is now the example of the law. And the example he's going to give is one of marriage and marriage law specifically. He says, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. The, the word her in the New King James is italicized. It's actually in the Greek just written as this. She is released from the law of husband. That's why we titled the message Law of Husband. Kind of a strange phrase, but this is, comes right from the text. So the law of husband is really the law of marriage. The law of marriage. And he's saying this, the law of husband binds two parties to each other. For as long as they both shall what? Live. Live. The law is binding only on the living. But here's the first case now. If one of them dies, she is released from the law of husband. The word that he uses for released is a Greek word that uh, is it's the word katargeo. It's the same word actually that he used in Romans 6 verse 6 where he said, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, referring to Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, is one translation. Katargeo is the word. It means um, deprived of its power. That's really the key. It's been deprived of its power. She, in other words, is released if her husband die. Here, the wife is released from the law of marriage. In other words, the law of husband no longer has authority over her. It's not binding, but actually it's been deprived of its power, the power that it had because a death has occurred between one of these two parties. Paul has a similar statement to Romans 7 verse 2. When he speaks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, listen to this. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. 
But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay? So, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, if a married woman has a husband who dies, she is free to remarry. And the, the qualification is really only in the Lord. So she needs to marry another Christian. But she's free to remarry whomever she wants in the Lord. By the way, this would be true in the reverse in this analogy as well with the woman and the husband. If she dies, the husband would be free, right? But it's important we stay with this analogy, and I'll show you why as we go. Another thing here is sometimes this verse is misinterpreted, Romans 7, 2, where, and people will, will extrapolate things that are not meant to be extrapolated here. They will conclude that remarriage is only allowed in the case of death. That is not what this text is teaching. It's not the point, and it's actually not a correct deduction. The point here is the law has dominion only over living people. Keep that in your minds. Now look at verse 3. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. In other words, while both husband and wife live, they are bound to each other by law in a marriage fidelity. If she marries another man while her husband is alive, she violates the law of marriage. And she will rightfully be called, what? An adulteress. In other words, she will be guilty of sin. The law would condemn her. But if her husband dies, the law of marriage is no longer binding upon her. It's not. So that if she remarries, the law can't condemn her. This is really the key. The law can't condemn her, what? As an adulteress though she remarries another. She's free to remarry, only in the Lord, because death has broken that bond. Death for either party breaks the marriage law's bond over the husband-wife union. The law cannot condemn as an adulteress upon the death of her first husband. So I'm slowly going through this because this is going to come to a crescendo here in verse 4. This is the application. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So here's the application that Paul makes, and with a little bit of a twist. He's saying, look, it's not the husband who has died now. It's you who have died. You are the woman, and you've died to the law. Now stay with this. If you were the woman in the marriage analogy, who was your husband? Romans 5.21 again. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Who was your husband? Sin. You were bound to sin. Sin was a cruel husband, a taskmaster, a tyrant. 
He exercised an absolute dominion over us. He was the worst possible husband. And you know what the tragedy is? We didn't even mind. In fact, we loved that husband. We served him before we knew Christ savingly. We gave ourselves to him freely, and he destroyed us. Can you think and imagine what kind of an affront that is to God? I mean, God who originally made mankind for his glory, that we would be in union with him and communion with him as we walk through the earth, and not only that, but multiply, replicate his image as his image bearers throughout the earth. I mean, you can see there very much in creation a picture of God's wedding to mankind. And when Adam sinned, we learned in Romans 5 that we all sinned in him, in Adam, and we abandoned our first husband, and we joined ourselves to idols. Those are called, or that is called, spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. We gave ourselves to anyone but the Lord, and we loved it. That's really been the story of man ever since the garden. Man pursuing other spiritual lovers committing spiritual adultery in total defiance of the Lord, our first husband. That was your position and that was my position before we came to Christ. We were spiritual adulterers. You may not have even known that you broke the seventh commandment, but you have, and so have I. So we were married to sin. He says, but you have become dead to the law. So in other words, you died. And just as an aside... Now, think about this. As we think about law as being that which binds two parties together, it's the death of one of those two parties that breaks the law, right? So what is happening here is the Lord is saying, you are the woman and you have died. Is there another way that God could have released us from the law of husband, a law that governed our marriage to sin? Well, yes, he could have killed sin, right? He could have killed the other party to release us. But what's the problem with that? Think with me. The problem with that is we would still be unclean, bad trees, polluted by sin, right? Sure, we wouldn't be married to sin anymore, but we'd still be in need of purification. We could never come into the presence of God like that. We are unfit to be in his presence. And so... God, in his infinite wisdom, crucifies us with Christ, and then he makes us new creations in Christ. He gives us a clean heart, a new spirit. That is the new you we're going to get to that Paul identifies in Romans 7. There is a new I, separate from this flesh that is corrupted by sin. It's the new spiritual you. So we have to be born again. And then he sanctifies us so that we gain mastery over this body of sin, which is still corrupted by sin. But I want you to remember this. God will bring a death to that old husband's sin one day. Just not now, yet. But he will. In the end, when in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Well, what's the sting of death? Sin. So if death is going to be swallowed up in victory, guess what? Sin is going to be destroyed. There will be no sin But in his brilliant plan of salvation now for us, he first regenerates 
our spirits, and then our bodies come later. That's our glorification. So you died, brother and sister. I died. But he says it this way. You have become dead to the law. He uses the passive voice intentionally. In other words, this is not something that happened that you did to yourself. This is something the Lord did for you. You're not able to kill yourself in this spiritual way that joins you to Christ. Only the Lord can do that. You say, I still don't understand. How how did I die? Romans 6 verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were immersed into his death? Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be deprived of its power. So at the cross, we were crucified with Christ. We died with him then. That's when we died. And he made it effective for you when he brought you to faith in Christ. So now following this analogy, what happens after the husband dies? What is this woman free to do? To remarry, right? Only in the Lord. And what does the text say next in Romans 7-4? That you may be married to another. That you may be married to another. Now, I don't know about you, but this struck me because if we died, how are we going to be remarried? Dead people don't get married. But he says that you may be married to another. So of necessity, he's talking about our rebirth. He's saying, you have been raised from the dead spiritually to new life. This is what he was talking about at the beginning of Romans 6 when he said, even so, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God, the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We will be brought to new life. We will be resurrected spiritually, which is the case for all of us now who trust in Christ. So that's the first thing. Of necessity, we've come back to life in order to be remarried. Secondly, if we've died in this marriage analogy and the law of husband is no longer binding on our first husband's sin, what's the implication? We can be remarried to another in the Lord without what? Without being condemned as an adulteress without being condemned. So now when we put all of this teaching together, what does it mean that we've become dead to the law? Isn't that really the answer we're after? This is the explanation of Romans 6, 14, the second half of it. We're not under law anymore. What does that mean, Paul? Well, it can't mean that the law has died because it's not gone away. He doesn't say the law died. He says you have become dead to the law. There's a difference. The law is still alive. It's very much in effect. In fact, Paul in Romans 7, verse 12, is going to say there's nothing wrong with the law at all. The law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. So what does it mean then that we have become dead to the law? Well, by being joined to Christ's death, The law has been deprived of its power to condemn us any longer. In the case of this marriage analogy, as adulteresses, but more broadly, at all.
the law has no ability to condemn us anymore because we've been joined to Christ. Do you see? We have been released from its condemnation is what Paul is saying. The law is still there. It's good. We now have a new relationship to us. We have a new relationship to it. It no longer condemns us. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 56 again. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The power that sin has is the law. In other words, it's the law that has the power to stir up our sinfulness within us. We're going to see that as we continue in this chapter. Its power is that every time we sin, it accuses us correctly. And we have guilt because of it. The wrath of God mounts up against us, is heaped up against us every time we sin until the day of wrath when God is going to empty that treasury of wrath upon all who are trusting in themselves and not in his Son. But if it's the case that all our sins have been paid in full, and it is at the cross at Calvary, praise God, then the law's justice has been satisfied, brother and sister, and therefore it has no more power to what? Condemn us. No power to condemn us. Christ has paid it all. So now guess what? We are free to remarry. And what's the qualification from 1 Corinthians 7? Only in the Lord. So who does Paul say that we were married to? To him who was raised from the dead. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. I'd say that qualifies as in the Lord, wouldn't you? So God has joined us to Christ first in death in order to release us from the law of our marriage to sin, which only condemned us. And to raise us to new life with Christ in order that we would be married to a new man who is the risen Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, a husband who will never die again and who will never leave us nor forsake us. See, we are married to Christ now. In chapter 6, we learn that we're slaves of God. And it's a wonderful freedom because his slavery is easy. His burden is light. He's a wonderful master. Here's another picture of this wonderful union we've been brought into, marriage. We're now wedded to Christ. He has taken us as his bride. And brothers and sisters, there is a marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming. We read that as our call to worship this morning in Revelation chapter 19. Listen to it again in this context. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We are dressed in the righteous robe, the fine linens of Jesus Christ, and through his power in us, his fruitfulness we're going to see in just a moment, we are able to do these good works, these good acts, which all stem from this royal robe of righteousness we are clothed in, this wedding dress which is spotless. Then he said to me, John the Apostle, blessed are those who, called, who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So, brothers and sisters, we are married to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, that is Jesus Christ. That's true of us now. We are wedded to him. He has taken us for himself and he's cleansed us in our justification. Remember John 15, verse 3? You are already clean because of what? The word that I have spoken to you. That's our justification. And now he's in the process of sanctifying us by his Holy Spirit in order that one day at this marriage supper of the Lamb, he will present us to himself blameless, without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. Holy, in other words, perfectly holy. So that will be the final consummation of the wedding. The truest and fullest sense of that wedding is yet to come. But we are married to him now. Praise God. And so Paul, in this analogy of marriage, I hope you see is helping us to understand something of this new relationship we have to the law. If you've died with Christ, you are dead to the law. Not that it goes away, but that you now have a new relationship to it. It can no longer condemn you for anything. Because Christ in rescuing you paid the full price that was required for all all of your sin and my sin. Here's how Paul puts it to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from, delivered us from, the law of sin and death. There's the change in relationship. The law now has a different meaning for us. The law is no longer a condemning law of sin and death, but in fact is a law of of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law is now our only rule for faith and practice. Rather than condemning us, it transforms us to be like our husband, Jesus Christ. What does all this result in? Here's how Paul puts it at the end of verse 4, Romans 7, that we should bear fruit to God. That we should bear fruit to God. The purpose of our marriage to Christ is that we should bear fruit. Doesn't that really take on new meaning now that we're understanding our union to him in the context of marriage? Right? Not just as slave-master, but as married together. What is the product of this holy union that he has brought us into between the risen Lord Jesus Christ and us, the church? in this most intimate relationship possible. What's the product of that union? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Children whose names are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The very attitudes and character of Christ that he's developing in us. It's not, not possible to bear fruit to God when we are married to sin. Not possible. But as the branch is grafted into the vine, he bears his own fruit in us. This is not something we have the ability to do on our own, loved ones. Um, Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, only to the extent that it abides in the vine, which, as we learned last week, means we continue to hear this word that cleanses us, the word of Christ and how do we know? How do we see this fruit in action? What are these, how are these attitudes and characters of Christ expressed? Well, in short, love for God, which means obedience to him. 
and love for the brethren, which means sacrificial service to each other. If you see those, you see fruit, the fruit of Christ. And the way that that works itself out is so wonderful as he begins to mold and shape our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our wills, all begin to change and culminate in new ways of speaking and acting. Speaking and acting. It must come out. We will see it. Hebrews 13, verse 15, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips. And what is that fruit? Giving thanks to his name. We have become a thankful people by God's grace. The fruit that he is bringing out in our hearts that culminates through speech is thankfulness. It comes from a thankful heart that he has given us. We are thankful people. Actions. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink, even in the most menial, simplistic tasks of your daily life, do all to the glory of God. In other words, the glory of God now becomes the grid through which you evaluate all of your life. Every decision, every problem, every question, Lord, what would you have me do? What would please you most in this situation? Help me to honor you because I don't have my own wisdom. You are my wisdom. So just in closing this, as Paul has begun to give us an answer to this question, what it means that we're not under law anymore. What's the Christian's relationship to the law? You become dead to it. In the same way that a married woman has become dead to the law of husband once her husband dies. It can no longer condemn you for adultery, though you are remarried to Christ. In fact, it can no longer condemn you for anything anymore because Christ has paid it all. This is where we have to go as well. Even when you are adulterous toward Christ, as a Christian I'm speaking now, even when you have uh, other loves in your life that displace the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme love of your life in a given moment I'm talking about, right? When you give in, you yield to sin rather than to Christ, your master and your husband. You're still not condemned. You're not condemned. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His word to you is that all your sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven in him. Look to that promise and believe. Have you ever thought about this? Why would God ever want to marry somebody who previously was married to sin as their husband? Why would God want to touch that which has been tainted and unclean, corrupted by sin? Yet here is the love of God on display, brothers and sisters. That he would even approach us, let alone handle us, wash us of our filth, dress us and, 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 and bind up our wounds that were disgusting to him. Heal us of our spiritual disease and put his royal wedding garment on us, his robe of righteousness. And then wed us to himself in the most intimate relationship possible. Is this not amazing love? How can it be? 
that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And when we sin, he says this, if you confess your sin, if you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive you all your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if that weren't enough, loved ones, he has then purposed and is reproducing himself in us, bearing his own fruits in us to bring great glory to his name throughout this earth and in the family of heaven who are looking on eagerly into this mystery of salvation that God should descend and condescend and rescue us and take us for himself in a more intimate relationship than the angels have with him. Amazing. So let me ask you now, as you think about all these things, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is this any kind of a warrant to sin? These truths, brothers and sisters, should melt our hearts. And if they don't, God help us to wake up. We are beginning to realize that his love for us is constant. It never changes. We are loved with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31. So wonderful. An everlasting love. His measure of love to you is never based on your performance to him. When you're having a bad week and you are giving in to sin, he doesn't love you any less than when you are performing well in in obeying him. His love for you is steady, unending, never changing. He is a rock. He's solid in all his attributes. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. Why do you think we have the book of Hosea? What a a picture of God's love for a wife who is a harlot, an adulteress who left him time and time again, and yet he stays with her because he is faithful, though she is not. Brothers and sisters, the news is God has done the same thing for us, and yet here's the difference between the old covenant and the new. In the old covenant, we had no power to stay with him. We turned to our own ways, and we went to destruction. The wages of sin is death. We were headed that way. But God in his infinite mercy has rescued us and he has given us of his spirit. He has caused us now to walk in his way. We have now power to be faithful to him only because of his faithfulness to us. Do you see? He is holding us to himself so that we ultimately will never depart from him as a faithless bride. Thank you, Lord. We are bound eternally by a new law of husband. It's called the law of Christ. The law of Christ. And we are going to learn a lot about that as we continue to go through chapters 7 and 8. His love for us is steadfast, constant. And by grace, he's given us a new heart that grows for him. Right? He's enlarging our heart, as the psalmist puts it in 119. Um, As we walk with him, as we think on his word. As we look to him, brothers and sisters, can't you resonate with this truth? We don't want to commit adultery against him anymore. We are grieved when we sin against him, when we commit spiritual adultery. He brings that conviction to our hearts. He gives us uh, the gift of repentance to turn from that, to recognize that as a way of death. And to turn back to him to experience the joy of the Lord even after we sin again and again and again. Thank you, Lord. We have a new pattern of life now, a pattern of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. So I hope you see and are beginning to see this is freedom. This is the true freedom that we have in Christ. You are the church of the freeborn. You're not slaves to sin any longer, so don't live like that any longer if you are. The wages of sin is death, but he, never, he did not give us what we deserved. The gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, he has cleansed us. He is making us fruitful. He is giving us more knowledge of himself, and in his presence is fullness of joy. Joy. So what should our response be to such amazing truth? Gratitude, humility, obedience, a life of service from a pure heart. And this really is the heart, I think, that the psalmist expresses in Psalm 146, which we read together this morning. I just want to point you there one more time as we close. Psalm 146, so wonderful. This could have been David, we don't know for sure. He starts and he says, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. Psalm 146. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes nor in the Son of Man. David, if he wrote this, he was a prince. He says, don't trust in me. Don't trust in any man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth that's the curse of sin, right? In that very day, his plans perish. He may make all the plans in the world, but God directs his ultimate steps, right? Put your trust in the Lord. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob, verse 5, for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. He is the omnipotent, sovereign God who made all things. Every resource is His. Look to Him. Put your trust in Him. Even His word cannot fail. It is established forever. He keeps it forever. So you can trust Him. Verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed. Brothers and sisters, we were the oppressed when sin was our husband. That was the true oppression. That's the true oppression that Scripture speaks about when he talks about the oppressed. That's why God has such a heart for the oppressed, by sin. And that's why Jesus came to save us from our sins. Who gives food to the hungry? Is Jesus not the bread of life who satisfies our souls? Amen. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. We were imprisoned, bound to our sin and to Satan. And it's the stronger man armed who came and had to dispossess him who was the strong man, Satan. He has set us free from the prison of sin. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down, who are crushed by their iniquity. The Lord wounds all of those who are his. You know how he does that? By opening our eyes to the truth that we are oppressed by sin. That results in a posture of I can't believe I'm crushed by this. God, help me. Deliver me. He causes us to cry out to him, and then what does he do? He answers us by saving us, by pointing us to Christ. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over strangers. That was us. Strangers have no inheritance in the land. 
We were strangers, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians chapter 2. We had no right of inheritance with the Lord or his people. He's now brought us in and he's made us what? Citizens of heaven. We have every right. In fact, we are co-heirs with Christ of all things. We were the fatherless. He relieves the fatherless. We had no father before God became our father. The devil was described as our father, but he's no true father. He abused us. He tyrannized us. He hated us. God is our true father. We also were these widows. When, when we were crucified with Christ and our husband died, he didn't leave us without a husband. He took us to himself and married us. We were those widows. Do you see how this is such a wonderful picture of the Lord rescuing us from our slavery to sin and wedding us to himself? The Lord shall reign forever, excuse me, as the contrast to the Lord watching over strangers, relieving the fatherless and widow. He turns the way of the wicked upside down. He brings their path to destruction. He makes that path a crooked path. But the Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Loved ones, do you want to have power in your lives to fight sin this week and every week to come? Meditate on these truths. What we have been learning in Romans, meditate on these truths. And in Philippians and every other study that we're doing, meditate on these truths. Let them pour over your souls. And you know what you will find? You will find that you have your freedom indeed. Now hear the words of the Lord Jesus when he says in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Let's pray. Father, what can we say in response to this amazing picture you have painted for us to know what you have done for us and what you are doing in us and where you are taking us? But thank you. Glory to God in the highest. May you receive all the praise, honor, and glory. May we decrease and you increase. Lord, make your name great through us as your people. May the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted as our lives and the product of our lives all points to you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.